Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. And I'm Matt. Hi, Matt. Hello. Today, we are going to continue our discussion of the documentary, Why We Hate. We covered episodes one and two in the first episode there. And that led us up to page six and a half of my notes. Wow. Of of 17. Of 17 pages. Yeah. Uh, I actually just heard the episode from Psychology in Seattle where they talked about this. And as much as Kirk and Berto can talk, their episode was only an hour and 17 minutes. They covered a pretty good amount though, right? Or no? No? I... It was more of just a conversation. It didn't really feel like it was... uh, it's definitely not as in-depth as we're going into each specific episode. He more... I would really like to know why we hate. Well, that's one of, one of the things I did like about their episode is it did give some valid critiques. Although they did both say it was really well done. I didn't even realize Steven Spielberg was one of the producers. Did okay, you know that? So critiques of the documentary. Of the documentary, yeah. Yeah. So, and one of the things that they were noting was they, they did leave out some important factors when they're talking about hate and what leads to hate. Um, specifically more like power structures and systems that are behind the things that led to the things. They kind of touch on those issues throughout. And also, one of the critiques they had was the same critique I had, which apparently a lot of people had, which was it really jumps all over the place. It is a little more hard to follow, especially as I'm reading these notes. It's nonlinear for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're trying to kind of get an idea, but as I was taking the notes, I realized it really does jump back and forth. So it's not quite the linear storytelling. Yeah. But I really liked it still. I still felt like it was worth watching. It's very thought-provoking, and I, I, yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah, so. And I also agree with them that all of the episodes, especially episode one, uh, are very graphic. <laughs> like, right. they're, they really are heartbreaking, and they'll mess you up. Yeah. You know, Kirk was even saying, I'm not very sensitive, and I even had to look away sometimes. Yeah. And like we talked about in the first episode we did of covering this, was that I could only handle one episode at a time. Yeah. And it's a lot. We tried our best to power through (laughs) more than one or two, and it was exhausting. Yeah. It takes a lot out of you emotionally to watch this kind of stuff. So, you know, here we go into it again. But still... Uh, at that, saying that, uh, it's well worth watching. Yeah. It really is good. So. It is. It's, it really helps start conversations, if nothing else. Uh, one of their critiques, I guess I can get into this when it comes up, but I just want to mention it now in case I forget. One of their critiques was that they thought that the documentary was a little harsh on the Trump supporter side. And that it may make people not want to finish the documentary because they feel like it's they're unfairly represented. I obviously am not Trump-leaning. I mean, that should be fairly clear to anyone that knows me at all. However, I also have acknowledged many times that there's plenty of people I know that are Republicans and they're good and decent human beings. And I'm still trying to reconcile <laughs> that whole thing. But as a libertarian democrat as i was watching it i really felt like the parts they were showing with the republican people even though i didn't agree with their opinions i thought it really did a good job of showing 
what their opinion was and where they how they were coming to their perspective like how they see the other side rather than just telling saying hey this is what they're spewing yes it was really hey this is where we're coming at it from and it wasn't a bunch of crazies and i think if somebody's willing to sit down and start watching a documentary called why we hate (laughs) they're probably willing to sit through i hope so that small portion of it yeah yeah i hope so so we're going to start out on episode three of the documentary, which is called Extremism. We'll see how far we get today. Yes. Extremism. So Extremism starts out with a lady named Sasha Havlik, Havlik? and she's a counter-extremist expert, ex- counter-extremism expert. She discusses the mainstream of extremism. Uh, she and her mother are from Yugoslavia, and... They watched in just 18 months how that country turned itself into a bloodbath. So 18 months. 18 months. That's how quick the decline was. Right. And, of course, that does... Cats. That does seem a little alarmist. <laughs> you know, that, that can really freak you out. And I don't want people to come away from the documentary thinking, oh, shit, we're all hating yeah. each other right now. In 18 months, we're going to be in the Civil yeah. War. It is quick a time that in 18 months, this country could fall apart. <laughs> I mean... There were other circumstances to yes, Yugoslavia's situation. Yes. And a side note of Yugoslavia... Was this... This was in the early 90s or late I'm, 80s? I'm guessing this was late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. I was in Bosnia, which is in that region there, when Yugoslavia split Herzegovina. apart. Hmm. Uh, well, Yugoslavia split apart... At some point. Um, right. But when the U.S. military and NATO and the U.N. Was went in. Slobodan Milosevic. Yes. Uh, that had just finished. They had had their huge genocide, which is what she's talking about. And we were on a peacekeeping mission. And it was really devastating to see that country, honestly. Uh, we went to Sarajevo one day and saw where the Olympic Games had been held. We saw... I mean, it really is a war zone. There was bullet holes everywhere. Didn't they basically show you where there was a mass grave of people? Well, it's not a mass grave like you're thinking. Like, it's not just a pit with a bunch of bodies, but there was an entire hillside. And when I say hillside, I mean giant, like mountainside of a cemetery. (sighs) And then in the city was really only women and children. I mean, it really was... An incredible thing to see. And what I love is that I've met some people that have been back there since then, which is 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, showing my age. And you're old. I know I'm old. (laughs) And okay, boomer. (laughs) And uh, they say that it's really thriving. The economy's thriving. They're, you know, everything's getting back on track to being as it was or better. A lot of chicks around. Yeah. (laughs) Rude. I know. Uh, But, so I like to hear that it's it's really turned itself around and started to become prosperous and I am uh, a little bit jealous, even though it's terrible, jealous that you get to see that part of Europe, or East, Eastern, Europe, Eastern Bloc Europe. I always have wanted to go to Europe, and I've never been, so. Well, I always wanted to go to Japan, and you went. Terrible. Yeah. But, well, it's history, though. It happened. Yeah. yeah. Which ties into this documentary, yeah. you know? All right. So back to the lady from Yugoslavia. 
she started at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. She started the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in 2006. And this studies the process of indoctrination and how they get out of extremism. So she's really studying how do people become extremists and how do they get themselves out of it or how do they help people get out of it. It's all about dialogue. <clears throat> well, a lot of it's about dialogue. So there was a guy named Frank. You'll remember this guy, the white guy from Boston. Had a bunch of tattoos. Yes. Do you remember him? He was somewhat uh, anti-Semitic. <laughs> well, he was... He was a neo-Nazi. He was. He, he starts out talking about growing up in wherever you grow up in your neighborhood. It's already tribal. It's already like right. that's your tribe. You're from this and, block and they're from that block. And, right. Yeah. And even at nine years old, he was physically and emotionally abused by his stepfather. Ended up moving in with his dad. That also didn't go very well because dad. he... His dad was a piece of garbage too. Uh, no, it wasn't his dad necessarily, but he ended up going to that black all-black school. And yes. he was constantly bullied. and Because he was the white guy at an all-black school. Right. And, I mean, that's that's one of the critiques I think they were talking about, is you're really not talking about why is that. It's not like he, you know, deserved it as he a wasn't child. Going, he wasn't going out looking for it. No, but why would it be that a school of black children would bully a white kid? There's all kinds of systemic and terrible things that led up to and that's where the tribalism, culturalism... <clears throat> and generational hate and oppression and systems and power, all yeah. different kinds of things. You're different. Yeah. So, but anyway, back to that. So he was bullied. He can, And that really continued his hatred of everyone because he had started being abused and then he got bullied and there was just nowhere safe. And so he was just divided from everyone. And it just kept, you know, he just kept getting madder and madder and more hateful. Which you can understand as a young child getting bullied and just hating everybody at some point. So he ended up going to his cousins in Pennsylvania, and that's where he was introduced to the skinheads. Yes, that's right. And he was finally able to feel like he was a part of something. So instead of bullying him or beating him up, they were embracing him. They were saying, hey, come with us. We've got this great, you know, idealism and... We'll take care of you, and we're a family, and you're awesome. Right. You're here for a purpose. The way you've been feeling your entire life is how we feel. Right. Yeah. So, Sasha talked about trauma as, as a commonality, and how these groups uh, offer love and family and support to those who are lost. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were offering a place of family where he had none. He had no support system. And just, I think, similar to people that end up in gangs, they may come from homes or neighborhoods or whatnot that they don't have the support that they would benefit from, and they end up in terrible situations because that's what's there. That's what's available. Yeah. I, I wish I could elaborate, but you said it pretty well. It's, it's tragic, and it's everyday life. It is. So Frank talks about... Um, he was told that God chose him. So this is another level, especially with this particular group, where they're telling you that this is from on high, that you're special and God chose you. So yeah. not only are they offering you family and love and support, but they're, now... They're validating it with religion. Yeah. <laughs> 
And that makes him feel even more special. Like, oh, I was chosen for You've this? You've been anointed. Exactly. And who wouldn't, after all that abuse and trauma, be like, hell yeah, I'm doing whatever they tell me to do. This is awesome. <clears throat> yes. And he was too young to really know any better, to have critical thinking skills, you know? Yeah. yeah. Or too traumatized, I should say. <clears throat> So at some point, he ended up kidnapping and beating up a rival, and he went to jail. That's right. And that's uh, where it was even enforced, his, his, you know, already, the path he'd gone down is just being cemented into his brain. And, you know, being in jail could be a whole nother episode. Uh, Yeah, it's just, yeah. You're in prison, you better choose a path. And it better be the right path, or shit's going to be terrible. Yeah. So, when he got out of jail, this is the crazy thing. And so similar to the Westboro Baptist girl that someone finally reached out with oh, empathy. That's that story. Uh, this is when the only person that would hire him was someone that, uh, some guy, some guy said, Hey, this guy's offering a job to work on furniture. But I want you to know that he's Jewish, and Frank, the neo-Nazi, straight up wearing those black neo-Nazi boots, was like, well, I don't even care as long as he pays me. Like, I don't care. I'll just take the job, because he was the only one hiring. So he shows up, and he works his ass off. Works his ass off. And then when it comes down to payday... Yeah. See if you remember. (laughs) I think he thinks... This guy's not going to pay me. Right. And, well, uh, well it, that was the first part. So he gets hired. He was ready for a fight. And then the guy uh, didn't oh, meet his oh, expectations. Right, 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 right. So then he actually offered him a full-time <clears throat> job. And Frank's right. like, I'm still on guard because I don't trust you. I've been told all these awful things. I'm primed for you to let me down. And then he breaks a piece of furniture. He he scratches or breaks a piece of the furniture, which is the the one thing, the one and only thing that the the, the, the boss said was just like, please just don't don't ruin my furniture. Don't right right. Don't screw it up. Don't break anything. So as soon as he broke it, He's I'm like, sure all of the memories came flooding back of him like, getting the shit it. beat out of him from his stepfather. Yep, that was it. And he was like, this guy is not going to pay me. It's going to give me an excuse to fight him. I'm primed I'm for fired. a fight. I'm fired, yeah. I'm, I'm down. Right, because now he's vulnerable. Right. And worried that he's not going to have the one job he had, and he wants to fight this guy because yeah. he's upset at himself for yeah. all this stuff. So the guy comes, and the guy gives him a full paycheck. On payday, yeah. He's... Gives him all, all of his pay, and then... As Frank's standing there dumbfounded, he's like, well, you're coming back Monday, right? And Frank went home and threw his boots away. Like, how could this person, just like I think she said, how could this person offer me grace and support and mercy when I didn't show that to him? I didn't show that to other people. I don't deserve it. And there's a whole other lot of conversation about trauma and self-worth, but... All that was going through his mind, and here this guy, just like that Jewish blogger, did not meet his expectations and did not disappoint him, but rather gave him a second chance and showed him love. Double down, yeah. So that guy threw his boots away. Not only did I not fire you, (laughs) 
please hurry up and come back on Monday so yeah. we can get some more work done. And Frank's quote at the end of that story was that he didn't know how to fight against the conversation. That's right. That's what it was. It's so important to not meet verbal aggression with verbal aggression. It's, it's hard to do. We want to do it, right? It feels good sometimes to yell back at somebody, especially when you feel like you're right. And so he went and became kind of a motivational speaker in a, in a sense. He uh... he did. Unfortunately, I did not put my notes in that order because they jump around in the story. <laughs> right. But, I mean, he, he took this mm-hmm. to heart and went out there and started telling people. Yeah. Here's what I used to be. Yeah. Here's, here's what drove me to be this way. And here's what stopped me from feeling like I had to be that person. Right. And I can't promise that every single person in his scenario would turn their life around with one instance. But how many times has it happened? I don't know that I could, in his shoes, do what he did. It's pretty amazing. So after his story, they jump back into something else. And they're talking about the Zimbardo experiment. For those of you that don't know or haven't heard, the Zimbardo experiment oh, was man, yeah. uh, the prison ex- Stanford prison experiment is another way that that's described. I've heard plenty about this through psychology classes and studies and all kinds of different things have come out. Uh, one thing that I hadn't really known, or maybe I forgot that I'd heard it, was that when they were talking about... So, if you haven't heard of it, basically... This study was supposed to be college students that were asked to come do an experiment for up to two weeks. And they... Good guys and bad guys. Well, they they didn't know that at the time. They were randomly selected to be prison guards or prisoners. And then within six days, they had to completely stop the experiment because of the abuses that were happening. Right. And uh, the people who were being the prisoners Mm -hmm. actually got... They got approached, cuffed, and taken into custody. Like in yes. their private lives, they were right. They no matter what time of day it was, they were they were arrested. Right. So they didn't know that was happening, and that just kind of started the whole thing off. Uh, people were really traumatized by that experience. Some of them. That was a hardcore. And of course, it would never be ethically approved. Oh, never at this ever point. again. Yeah. But there were a lot of things that came up, and originally he had gone around talking to people and wrote a book, and everybody was talking about how how quickly people can devolve into monsters and that we have these monsters inside of us. But what they did note when they went back and tried to recreate the experiment in the 2000s, I feel like it was in Britain in like 2004 or five. I didn't write that. Uh, oh, so right, they tried it again. Yes, they could not replicate it. The guards were sitting around saying, "I don't want to really be a guard. I'd rather be a I'd prisoner. rather be a prisoner than a guard." Yeah, they <laughs> they weren't abusing each other, and the researchers were like, "Why can't we replicate this? This was such a big deal. I don't understand why we can't replicate it." So when they went back through and listened to all of the videotapes, humanity every socially single, had had evolved. No. That wasn't it. No? I don't know if, you know if you remember this. But there were audio recordings of Zimbar- Zimbardo, but also his his counterpart, who I think was Jaff. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember. 
Uh, he had told the guards after like day one or two, hey, we were encouraging them to be more brutal. Yeah. These guys are slacking off. You need to... You need to be more yeah, Be assertive. Strict. You need to make sure they follow your rules. You need to be more brutal. And yeah. they, Otherwise they were, we'll replace you. They yeah. were really directive, which is not something that came out in the original study. Which is exactly why they couldn't replicate it. Which I think proves the point of it's not some kind of inherent evil that we all have in us. It's they that were being pushed. They were bit. definitely being pushed. Now, not everybody would necessarily do that, but they were certainly encouraged. They didn't direct them to do some of the shit they did. But... No, but not all of the guards were like that either. Right. So, so that was really interesting, is that they really had encouraged the brutalization, and they discovered that afterwards. Things got pretty hairy on that. They did. So, what's terrifying, really, uh, was the speed of which everything changed, you know? Yeah. Whether it was Yugoslavia, or Zimbardo, or... Abu Ghraib. They talked about that a little bit. And it was just, things change. Things just kind of spiral out of control so quickly that you can't even bring them back. And that is the tribal tribal mentality. You get get around a group, or a mob mentality. Tribal Mm -hmm. mob mentality. a, A large group of people start to think the way, generally, they think everybody is feeling. Mm hmm well, and, and then someone doesn't stand up to it because yes, they always think someone else is going right. to. Rather than standing up to it, they actually even go along with everything right. more so. So at this point in the documentary, they do switch to another story of Jesse Morton. He also had severe child abuse in his childhood. He ran away at 16. And he was the one that found Faith uh, with Malcolm X in prison. Do you remember this guy? Mm, he, he converted to Islam in one year and changed his name, which I couldn't pronounce, so I didn't write it down. Uh, but he wanted to be a radical like Malcolm X. And he was even a supporter of bin Laden. Do you remember this guy? I'm having trouble remembering this. So he was trying to... He was like the biggest recruiter after 9-11. Like he was on a terror watch list. He used to stand outside New York mosques and trying to recruit people, okay, which yes, they were okay. pissed about. Yes, now I remember, yes. Yeah. Uh, and he would stand out on the street corner and just shout terrible things. You know? He would stand in front of mosques, yes. Right in front of them, because it's public property on the sidewalk. Right. He learned how to recruit younger people with slogans, memes, and violence. And uh, as I said in the documentary, he was the most prolific recruiter in America at the time. Wow. Yeah, and... Uh, and there's lots of videos of him. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I'm remembering him uh, speaking loudly on the sidewalks in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of mosques, recruiting people, and, you know, just, like, spouting uh, basically hate, <laughs> what it seemed like. Yeah, and he was one of the ones that uh, was threatening Trey and... What's the South Park guy's names? Oh, Matt Park. Matt, Matt and Trey. Matt and Trey. Uh, because they had said that they were going to make a cartoon of Muhammad. Oh, right. So he was the one that started that whole, you're going to regret doing that. Meaning, we're going to kill you. And so they did Team America. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. Anyway. Uh, 
<laughs> oh, that movie. Oh, my gosh. So he ended up moving to Morocco um, really to avoid prosecution because at that point he was on a watch list. He was part of threats to America. In a way, he people. was almost public enemy number one, kind of. Yeah, he was up there. Uh, I want to say he was probably on the top ten, but he moved to Morocco. So then the Arab Spring broke out, and I don't know a whole lot about the Arab Spring, but I know it was a big social movement over there much more towards democracy and freedoms and things like that. And while he was there, he had been teaching English to students and realized that they the only thing they really wanted was freedoms that he had been taking for granted in the United States. So this was basically a white kid that converted to Islam, wanted to be a radical, basically radicalized himself, and then ended up fleeing to Morocco and figuring out Wow, I've really been taking for granted everything I've been living with. All this stuff I've been spewing, I would not have been able to do anywhere else. And he also ended up finding himself defending Americans because they would say, look at these fat, lazy Americans. They're, you know, they don't take anything seriously and they take everything for granted and blah, blah, blah. So he ended up being arrested in Morocco right after bin Laden was killed. And this is... Really just fascinating that the whole time as the Arab Spring is breaking out, as he's kind of learning and realizing within himself how much he'd been taking for granted, that when the Secret Service got him on the plane to take him back to America, they asked him what name he wanted to go by, his Muslim name or his American name. And without really even thinking, he said he wanted to go by Jesse, which is his given name. So, he was doing really well. When he got back, he ended up, I don't, I think he got a really short sentence, prison sentence. I don't remember that part. But then he ended up getting out. He was working for someplace, I think, in New York. And then he ended up falling back into drugs because guess what? That trauma never really leaves you from when you're a child unless you're able to deal with it. So, once that happened, he kind of lost the good second start he had, second chance. And he finally started having realizations that maybe his ideology was wrong. Like, not necessarily Islam, but the radicalization and the jihadist mentality and the hate that he was spewing. Is that possible? Is what possible? That if you think about what you've been thinking for years, that possibly maybe some of the things you've been thinking might be wrong? Yeah, if you're faced with an alternate possibility. Okay. If this is part of what I what I loved about this documentary and what I hope You don't have to just stick to what you've been thinking. <laughs> no. No. What I hope that people take away from this documentary and I think part of what they were trying to get across is you do need to do some self-reflection. They talk about how the brain and I'm sure I get this get into this later but I know I'm not perfect. The brain is malleable. It's difficult, especially when we're older, to change. But it's possible. I know I'm not even kind of like real close to perfect. I'm, I'm pretty far from perfect. <laughs> That's pride fucking with you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm willing to admit that maybe things that I think probably aren't right. Or, you know, might be a little off the mark. 
Well, just being open-minded enough to even hear someone else's story is a huge first start. Right. That's what breaks tribalism. Opinions, being open. Opinions are opinions. Yeah. Truthful or not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So they change the discussion again because they do that. Of course, the cats are playing and making noise. So playing just like, in the crackly <laughs> three the tunnel. plastic wide tunnel thing. But they love that thing. Yeah. So it goes back to discussion of the far right and the white is right extremism, quote unquote. Goes back to Frank and he says that he really started seeing the movement of the far right, white is right, white nationalist movement. Didn't start with Trump, of course. We all know that. There's always been hate. But he says, and he would know because he was fully in it, is that it really started in 2008 with Obama being elected. Because even though people weren't really having the ability to speak about it publicly, because it was still, you know, considered not okay to be talking about that, you know, keep your hate to yourself and I think people were lulled into a false sense of I guess it doesn't exist because we don't hear about it anymore which was never true but he says that Frank's this Frank acknowledges Trump's rhetoric spoke to the white nationalists that hate groups were being used as a brand cleanse by making messages more gentle like cultural cleanse versus racism so just the language that they were using these white nationalist groups, as they were targeting people, instead of saying, hey, we're a hate group and we hate people, they were using different language like um, white rights, right? They're talking about having rights and uh, what is that called? Kind of like the reverse racism, or uh, reverse, what am I thinking of? Affirmative action and things like that. So they were using different kind of language but still having the same hateful message. Make sense? Yes, it does. And I, yes, I have to, fuck. I have to agree that I understand how people felt. Do you mean white people? Yes. Expand on that. So the more Aryan people, you know, more, I understand how they were, they were like, uh, you know, president N word, Mm -hmm. you know, Instead of just like, instead of just, okay, this is our president. Just accept it. He's your president, whether you want him to be or not. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah. They were completely uncomfortable yes. with President Edward being in the White House. Yeah. Yeah, and at that point, you know, it felt like to the rest of society, I think, hey, you know, <laughs> to ignorant white people, sorry, white people. Oh, hey, racism's ended. We have a black president. Right. Which, of course, yeah. was not true at all. No. Ask any person of no. color. But in particular... Eight full years, that pot was boiling. And exactly. they could not wait until so, it was done. Well, that's really... That's a great analogy. The pot was boiling, but nobody heard or saw the pot until Trump came along and swiped the lid off. And then it exploded. So it seemed like, to the outside eye... That well, it all started he, with He him. swapped the water with grease and... <laughs> Lit the match. And it was a giant grease fire. Right. Yeah. I agree. And and his rhetoric has 
encouraged people to be outspoken and not be afraid to say terrible, hateful things. Yeah. And it's not even transparent. Or, but, I'm sorry, maybe it is. Tra- it's not even. All right, here we go again. All right. <laughs> it's so. okay. Go. Say what you want to say. Uh, I believe that when we listen to President Trump at his. Uh, we're almost at the end of his first term, right? And he's still having pep rallies? <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't think he calls them pep rallies, but Well, yes. it's about what they are. Because why? There's a lot, I don't of, even know. a lot of theories about that. But uh, it seems like he is stirring up more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to... Keep his supporters riled up. He really seems like he makes it acceptable for civility to go out the window. I guess that's a great way of putting it, yes. Thank you. Name calling is okay and acceptable. Being hateful or afraid of your own of things outside of your own group is okay. Right. Being politically correct is bad. And some people may argue that it is. I mean, I definitely Come get... Come on. No, no, listen. I get Bill Maher's point, for example. I don't always agree with him on everything. Oh, uh, yeah. But I get his points that sometimes political correctness feels like it goes too far. I, when we say political correctness, what we're meaning is you can have discord and disagreement without being You don't have to vile. be a dick. Yeah, don't be a dick. Be a civil human fucking being. Understand? Other people have issues. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And what Frank's saying is, this started long before Trump. It was just that once he was elected, it made it acceptable in society at large to say those things out loud. It's all right to be upset about something, but sometimes just keep it to yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Tough it out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so at this point the documentary starts uh back with jesse again this is the extremist uh, malcolm x extremist he blames himself for some of the islamophobia because of his extremism and i think that's accurate i mean he really was spewing all kinds of terrible hateful false rhetoric about muslims which is actually kind of crazy considering he was islamic and is islamic in faith, and yet he is a cause for Islamophobia because of his jihadist extremist views. Isn't that kind of ironic? It's and not like, like uh, rain on your wedding day? It's like taking two steps past the line. If there is a line, you know, mm-hmm. crossing the line so far that everybody's like, Jesus. Well, and that's what I really liked about Jesse is now that he's kind of seen past that... He has a hard time even watching old videos of himself. He cannot watch old videos of himself. He acknowledges that he betrayed his religion and that it his religion has actually got his life better. He wasn't drinking. He wasn't using drugs. He was healthier physically. But because he went on that crazy tangent, you know, it didn't help him that way. And he has a lot of shame around those videos, you know. I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, as he probably should. I definitely think there should be some regret, but at the same time, he's a human being and he's trying to make amends. And how long do you, 
how long in a punitive society do we really want someone to carry around shame if it's I'd gonna... give him a hug if I saw him. <laughs> if, if what I'm saying is, how long do we want it? And again, this this always ties back to the criminal justice system and how it needs reform. But we so badly want justice and and punitive damages that it's easy to want him to be ashamed for every terrible thing he did because he did do some really terrible things. Yes, but the punishment should always fit the crime. And uh, Well, not just that, but he, he puts will a lot, never he, get he puts, better. He puts it more on himself than anybody right. ever will. He, that's true. The justice system will never... And he'll never be able to heal if he can't let go of the shame yeah. at some point. Yeah. And we don't want him spiraling backwards because he's full of shame. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. It's a social work tidbit. <clears throat> so Jesse is now working with Sasha, the lady we talked about at the beginning, with the counter-extremism oh, group. Right. Yes. And she notes the ideologies are different. Are they? Go ahead. She is a psychiatrist? Uh, no, she's not a psychiatrist. I was gathering that she was counseling him. It kind of seemed like she was counseling him, but I don't know if it was in that kind of way. Okay. All right. It just I, says she's a counter-extremist That's what expert. it seemed like to me, was that she was giving him some counseling. and I don't, I don't know if it actually said what her... It probably did say what her education is, but I'm not sure. Okay. All right. But she is helping him through that and how to, helping him make amends. It's probably helping each other. And she notes that even though their ideologies are very different, their personal... The two people's personal backstories are very similar. That's Frank and Jesse. They had no community. They had no social connection. And they had a ton of trauma. Right? So both of both Frank and Jesse were just kind of screwed yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. And not everybody that is born into that gets to be extremist. Obviously. And that's one of the great questions of the world. Is how does someone born into that come out a great person and do great things for the world and how is someone born with privilege come out and end up being like that crazy guy that killed that girl in Aruba I gotta say it's gotta be some sort of aha moment or some some uh, I don't know what the word is serendipity whatever the hell some sort of intervention <laughs> in one moment a meaningful moment mm-hmm. you know it does feel like sometimes that it's almost the look of the draw, but it also has to do with people's personal resilience. You know, we talk a lot about nurture versus nature. How much are we innately born with skills that we're able to be resilient through a trauma? You know, not everybody that goes through child abuse ends up being and an a extremist. A lot of people have a lot of support structure. A lot of people don't have support structure and they still end up coming out being okay. So, yeah. What is it? It's, we don't really know. I think that's the, the thing. If we knew, we'd have the secret to life, right? That's what they need to keep studying. I wish I had the answer. There's, there's always factors and there's theories, but because we don't really understand this gray, squishy mass between our ears. Yeah, some people just piss confidence and nothing ever <laughs> bothers them. Well, I wouldn't say it never bothers them, but they are able to be resilient and come out of it the other side. And some of that is just innate personality. You're just born with it. Some of it is environmental factors. Some of it is abuse and other things, you know, but I'd say at least half of it is, what are you born with? It's like a, 
it's like a precursor or one of those um what do you call that where you you could have cancer you have the gene for cancer but it doesn't mean you're going to get cancer you may have the gene to be susceptible to extremism but it doesn't mean you're going to become extremism unless these certain <laughs> factors in the environment are met what are you laughing at i'm just like yeah i get it doesn't help me understand it any better <laughs> i get what you're saying <laughs> yeah i mean you could be the type of person who could spend your entire life without getting a sliver i'm <laughs> waiting just, for the rest of this analogy <laughs> It's just um, funny to me. It's uh, there are infinite situations. Yes. And uh, I don't think we'll ever have a solution. I don't think we'll ever not, have not a, in our lifetime a description or a solution to define what makes people just you know completely <laughs> off the rails. Some people can just handle it. Some people can't. Yeah. Oh, I'm only on page eight. Sorry, sorry. We're never going to get through this. So, Jesse, the Muslim extremist, uh, actually during the documentary is speaking to a Unite the Right organizer. So, this person believes that, uh, the Unite the Right organizer believes that he's working towards civil rights for white people. This is the end of the show. This is right towards the end of the show. So... He really, truly believes that he is doing civil rights. Like, he's trying to promote social justice. And because of that, he feels like he's separated himself from the alt-right or the white nationalists. Because he's not coming at it from a hateful position. He's coming from an equal rights position. Yeah. And Jesse believes that it's not worth giving up on him because he's in the early stages of change. If someone had given up on Frank... He's a blogger, right? Or like a a podcaster or something like that? Or he's got his own radio show or something? Do you know the right guy? I think so, yeah. Wasn't that the situation? Yeah. I don't remember. But yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm trying to understand. He's trying to point out to him that... It's not a good idea to be that strong-minded about... Well, I think Jesse's point is, is important. And it's really important to realize this, whether it's an extremist view or whether it's just a view that you strongly disagree with, which is people have innate value as a human being. And even if you strongly disagree with your whole being about their viewpoint... You have to be open to looking at things from their perspective and see what their value system is and where they're coming from. Now, I'm not saying go out and hug people that are hateful and inciting violence. But in this particular instance, and I don't remember that guy's name, if you see where he's coming from, he generally believes he's working towards civil rights and equal rights. That gives you a space to have compassion for him and engage in a dialogue, and maybe you can get him to see things from another point of view. And maybe someday he will change his mind and realize that that's kind of silly and white power and privilege exists. And, you know. That women should be allowed to vote. But just straight up telling him in the beginning, you're wrong and you suck and you're not worth anything, (laughs) is not going to get him to change his mind. Right. 
So somebody has to extend the compassion hand. It's got to come from somewhere. And it doesn't matter if it always feels like you're the one having to be the bigger man, quote unquote. It's almost as if you should believe that all men are created equal. (laughs) The proverbial men, men and women. Men and women. Yes. So the very last part of this episode, and I guess we'll probably just leave this one episode. I was hoping to get two episodes in, but no, no, I, I like it. It was a good dialogue. Um, the, the, I don't want to get into the next episode. I think it's, yeah, that's, yeah, the next episode. I definitely want to start that at a different, a different one okay. for us. So the last part of episode three of why we hate 9% of Americans, 9% of Americans believe in Nazi ideology. Did you know that? What do you think about that statistic? Whoa, 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 whoa. 9%. <coughs> Believe in Nazi ideology? That's what they said. Americans. That's what they said. Now, that doesn't mean... Weren't we the ones who went to war against the Nazis? Yes. That doesn't mean that they're acting on it. It just means they have a similar ideology, which is fear-based. You've got to be fucking kidding me. I'm not even going to tell you how many people don't believe the Holocaust happened. Ugh! So, the loudest, shiniest objects are disguising the bigger moments. And Sasha, the lady from the beginning, believes that we are in a precarious situation and the entire society needs to, to move on this. Because this is the episode that I didn't see, isn't it? No. No? No, you didn't see the... Um, which one was that? Ah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't see the Crimes Against Humanity one. I gotta slip through this one. You might have. But the point is that she she's worried because she did see her country slip into something terrible in just such a short amount of time. And she really wants us to have a more, a bigger awareness around what's happening. And this divide that we're creating that seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Because no one will stop and say, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Or, or even better yet... I might not be wrong, but maybe the other person isn't the devil. Right. Pay attention and care for your fellow man. Just care for him. Yeah. You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to agree with him. We don't. So let's make that the final word for tonight because it's getting late. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps other people find the podcast. If you have comments about this episode or you want to comment in about some of the other episodes of Why We Hate, please email us at someDayDeadPC at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. We're on Facebook at Will All Be Dead Podcast. And I think that's all we can find us on. You better subscribe. <laughs> There's no reason we shouldn't take a moment to reflect upon ourselves and make sure that we're not the ones that are the problem. We only have one planet. We, in theory, only have one life. And why waste it being hateful to each other? YOLO. Because someday... We'll all be dead.